Let's offer this up to God. Dear Lord, we are very grateful for your word and grateful for you being the kind of God that speaks to us as we hear, hearts, minds. We'd ask that you would um, remove the barriers we have to what you're trying to do in us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, as you can tell from looking at your sermon notes, this is a famous passage. You say, 1 Corinthians 12 is famous? Well, because it goes into chapter 13, the one on love. And I didn't go after that. It's one of those things you avoid for years because it's so well known. You know, people read it frequently. They hear it at every wedding they go to. Um, but there was an aspect of it, not the, it's sort of like I got this feeling I need to read over this love passage and tell you to ignore it for the moment. That, that nothing to see here, move along. Because I, I came to this passage uh, on a different, uh, different axis. Um, I was shaving this morning, basking in my own splendor because there was the mirror, and as it unfogged, there I was. And I'm grateful for an unfoggy mirror. I'm grateful that at some point in history, and I don't know when, they invented glass mirrors with reflective metallic coating on the back, and not just polished bronze, uh, as polished as you could get it, which antiquity had. Everything was a bad mirror back then. Probably Narcissus fell in love with himself in his reflection in the pool because it was a, finally a clear image. You know, he's like finally getting something in focus. So I was looking and I knew certain passages. I was, this is odd, mirror images of self. And certain passages of scripture came to mind as I shaved. Talks about one place about how a man looks into an, a mirror, a mirror and, all, and at once forgets when he goes away what he looked like. I don't know how many of you could draw a picture of yourself if I gave you a piece of paper right now that was reasonably accurate. And you're, you look at yourself every morning. And you're fond of yourself. You're in love with yourself, for heaven's sake. But there was also that one out of Corinthians. 13, down in verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. There's a qualitative improvement suggested in that. And as I looked at this, the aspect that of love that I wanted to um, push at you was different than defining love. It was different than trying to create a church in which everybody just really liked each other. You like each other. I'm grateful. But there's a suggestion that a lot of religion, a lot of religion is available. I I had a witnessing opportunity this weekend. When was it? Friday? Saturday? Friday? Friday night. Um, Daniel and I uh, 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 were talking to a friend of his who had questions about 
God, the scriptures. And a lot of his objection, he'd been raised in the church and consequently had every reason not to believe. And I was agreeing, I, I agreed with him, you know, yeah. The church has every reason not to believe. Now why, as you think of that, I have this little quote from Evan Wilson here at the top of the left-hand column. He's my favorite. Only the gospel can begin the heaven of a church and only love can end the hell of it. Because, as you know, as a radical Anabaptist, as a person who believes not in the institutional church at all, I believe we are the church because we have believed. We have passed from death to life. We've come to newness of life in him and because I love other people that are like that, because that's kind of the new commandment in 1 John, that you love one another, um, it's automatic that we want to get together. We want to sing his praises. We want to study his word. That's the church. But very soon, after you have done that, you can sort of bump into one another casually. Oh, you're a Christian too? Let's have a Bible study. And boom, you have a Bible study. And then other guys want to show up. And there's like seven guys there. And finally they get married. And, and their families want to join. And baby, their kids want to. And pretty soon you have a home fellowship. And, and pretty soon somebody's a deacon. And then you elect elders, and then a treasurer, and then the end is nigh. It happens. You have to, you have to arrange this. God said he's not a God of disorder, but of peace. He wants things done decently and in order. He provides. It's not just us wanting to be a church and having the pews in a row and somebody sweeping up afterwards and cleaning the mess downstairs. It's not just that, not just us, because God is also giving gifts. Verse 27 of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, then healers, helpers, administrators, speakers in various kinds of tongues. So there, God is conspiring to churchify you to some degree. You were, you were brought into fellowship with each other by the work of the gospel. That's where you found the heaven that is the church. And God helps us out. He even gives people gifts of administration. You know how much you love administrators. Middle management in the kingdom of God. Helpers. I like administrators are above speakers of various kinds of tongues. Tongues down here, administrators above that. You get more help out of administrator if you're needing help. Now, so God is conspiring to make this thing called the church work. And he's giving us gifts to this body. And then he asks, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. When we have a... You, I often quote that passage in Ecclesiastes where it says, if you dig a hole, you will fall into it. Okay? And my general position about hole digging 
is that Murphy's Law applies all the time. If you do this, bad things will happen. If you don't do this, bad things will happen. Bad things happen. But realize that part of even the good and right thing, that you, being brought into fellowship with each other because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, feeling that little bit of heaven when you meet the other believers, and then God conspiring with you to lay on your heart areas where you can minister to the rest of the saints. I can do that, you say to yourself. I can help that way, you say to yourself. And sometimes your helps are what we'd call mundane, not very flashy, administrative, file cabinets and stuff. Other times you're shooting lightning out of your fingertips like I do on Wednesdays. I don't, actually, I was lying. I have a gift of lying. The church is given all these abilities to make this thing percolate along. And it's a body and you're individually members of it. Now that's, uh, we had a night a few weeks ago where we got together with some guy visiting from Texas and Patchens and the Rosiers and we were talking about Lewis's essay on membership. And he brings up in the essay that St. Paul invents the concept in history of membership. Here, Corinthians 11, 12. He invents it. Nobody had thunk this way before. Too often, when we're brought into a communion where something needs to get done because of some informal, mysterious force called our Christianity, and then natural distinctions of parts begin to show up about people who do different things. Those who have the gift of engineering decide, no, it's not a body, it's a machine. So they don't think of you as a foot, a hand, an eye, they think of you as a cog or a gear. If the machine is built right, if all the gears are completely designed correctly, they will mesh correctly and the job will get done. The computer, the machine will work. There's a machine language that goes into it. Now, part of the problem, that even if it's a membership of a body versus a machine, even if but more so if it's a machine. The church becomes a hell. A hell that people, growing up in it, get to a certain point where they get to buy their own stuff, live in their own place, they look at you and go, I don't want to be like that. Now, they can leave for other reasons as well. They can have every admiration of the Christians they know which is good, people still can make choices. But an awful lot of them, at least the storyline is, I see what Christians are like. That the way their church, we were talking about something, um, in a Bible study out of Philippians a few weeks ago, and uh, we were talking about unity of the saints in the mind of Christ, and um, there was a uh, somebody had 
there was some debate about some theological issues uh, carried on in a friendly way and one person was concerned because their, that had reminded them of all the train wreck in the churches they had grown up in of how many church splits they went through. We're going to go over through which I warned Abby this morning because the church eventually will need to be painted. And I said, do you want to paint it a color or white again? And all of a sudden we have a church split because there are the white privileged people. Abby's one of them. Other good and gun quickly damaging his chances said red. So it's not hard for Christians to be at each other's throats and it's and we know that something's wrong here. And we, the most well-organized machine and even body, just because I move away from a, you might say, a A-type designed, organized church where everybody has a job and the staff are paid. Can you imagine that? St- paid staff to take care of things and, and forms and a directory that has your family's picture in it. I grew up with that. There's some very scary photos of me in my teen years. But those sorts of things, some people go, that's, that's wonderfully organized. Then there are people who really have this relationship of a body, that in mind, but even there where Paul says, you are a body and you are individually members of it, carrying out these tasks like a hand or a foot or a heart or a head. It's a better metaphor than the machine. I was reading uh, last night uh, Warren Lewis. I don't know if you're familiar with Warren Lewis. Warren Lewis was the military brother of C.S. Lewis. And uh, he had written a pretty well-known book on um, 17th century France. Um, And an essay on uh, the French galleys in essays presented to Charles Williams. So I was reading, I had read it years ago and I would forgotten everything. So I read it again last night. And the galleys of France were floating hells. Just hell. And it described what, it, and it was for prisoners. You got sent to the galleys to row. Because technology hadn't invented fake wind. Everything was sails, or you rode it. And in the Mediterranean, you had to either wait for the wind, or you had to row it. And for military fast attack circumstances, rowing had always been the task. And the French had figured out you couldn't hire people to do this. You could not enough money in the world to get people to do this. But boy, you could inspire them with a whip. And so they did. Everybody, from criminals to French Huguenots, were sent to the galleys. And it was hell. It was a necessary hell. In other words, the the, the fate of the nation needed a galley. It needed a whole navy of galleys. But to step inside them, and it worked like a wonderful machine. So you know that a well-run circumstance, everything going on that the 
you know, things like the heat coming on this evening, this morning, to have this room warm by the time you got here, those little niceties happened because Ryan thought of programming the thermostat. We know that you can run a church. Both the express, physical expression, the building, the, the power plant, everything else. All the things that need to get done institutionally, organizationally. This galley can move on, but um, that's why we prefer the better metaphor of the body. Because the machine of humans rowing, being whipped till they row more. And them not caring, really, not caring if you're dead. If you fainted, they threw you over the side. Just spare parts. That's all you were. Now the wonderful metaphor of the body of Christ is that all members suffer together. As Paul talks about this in Corinthians. All members suffer together and rejoice together. Because a body is connected biologically. So that if you step on someone's foot, they, broadly they, everything from the top of their head to the bottom of that foot, reacts. So we sometimes think that if I shift the metaphor over to membership, I've solved the problem. Paul doesn't think so. Because the idea, the metaphor that describes the Christian life together is more than um, how the commands are carried out and what the uh, outcomes are supposed to be. If we had a church that was well organized as a body, we all felt things together, da, 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 and we're out evangelizing together and organizing help for the needy together, and we were having fellowship dinners together, everything was getting done. Preferences and inordinates can still occur. If I speak, verse 1 of chapter 13, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Which, I don't know if you stop and think about it, but those are both, what was that thing in uh, Dumb and Dumber? Want to hear the most annoying noise ever? And they start screaming in the car with this really high-pitched, grating noise. It's the noisy or clangingness of it. The noisiness or the clangingness of it. That's what this miraculous thing going on will be. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. What happens in that situation? You have a church where the pastorate is both prophesying accurately, not because they're loopy, not because you, you know, they just want to claim to be prophets. No, but actually have prophetic powers. And the mysteries that are all, every question you know, that you have about angels? Wouldn't that be cool? You get to go up to the pastor afterwards and say, well, thinking about angel X or angel Y, 
What's the difference? Well, the difference is this, my son. An archistatig is different than a... Well, let me write this down, because understand all mysteries. And they're telling you prophecies. You could come to the pastor before finals. How am I going to do? You're going to flunk. Doesn't matter what you do. Go out, have a nice dinner. Hang out with friends. You're going to flunk either way. Hey, you say, I don't like the news, but boy, what a church. What a church. All knowledge. Every pastor likes to think of himself as the Bible answer man. And if you had all faith, not only that, just, not just, it wasn't just super, superficial knowing. You believed in God. That you could move mountains. You know, the kind of thing, go back to that passage where Jesus says, if you had the grand face the side of a grand mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, get thee hence, and it would get, throw itself into the sea. He's saying, you had that. And my long-term desire to levitate would be carried out. Not every Sunday, but enough Sundays to impress the guests. But have not love, I am nothing. All of that, which seems like something, the, the, the danger that it seems like something to us, we had to first get dragged away from the machine, the kind of institution that is arranged like gears and cogs, uses up people, has no biological connection where they don't feel the pain of other people and rejoice in the pleasures of other people. We had to get out of that metaphor into this metaphor of a body. But even in that metaphor, you can be a cripple. You can be a maladroit. A spaz. You know people that are. I've seen people, grown people, adult people, walking on their legs as if the last time they checked on how to walk was when they were two. Or the only thing that is making a choice about how they walk is 32 feet per second squared. They're just meat hung on an armature, pulling down to the center of the earth and staggering through Walmart like they had no job thinking about walking. We can be a body and still be messed up. We can be a body and still be a hell because it's inordinate. Because sometimes the church gathers around the miraculous wonder worker, right? The tongues and the prophecy, the faith, moving mountains, the pastor that floats someday. Or the more rational church, we tend to be one of those, you know, that says, we're going to teach rational sermons and the points will be followed, 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 followed. And everybody goes, I like that sort of thing because I'm intelligent, I'm going to follow it. All knowledge. And the Lord says, ain't nothing. Not only is some miracles just an annoyance, but every other measure that you valued without love ain't nothing. If I give away all I have, because some of you are social justice creeps, that you want to go help the poor. Because when you hear about it, somebody do it without. Well, you know, I think prophecy is great. I think tongues are great. I think knowledge is great. I think helping the poor is great. 
If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, you could... Lewis was talking about this in mere, not mere Christianity, a great divorce. We read it this last week about people who fulfill every effort to create charities and don't care for other people, don't find themselves really caring. They just are very, very charitable, very, very philanthropic. Something is missing, and he's telling you what it is. Now, he's telling you in uh, the first four verses that love is an essential part of this body, lest this body be a living hell, like a machine can become a hell. If I don't have love, all of the other things are sort of pointless. Matter of fact, they're really annoyances. And then you say, okay, all right, all right, I, I get it, I understand, you've got you to gotta wrap everything in love. Easy thing to recommend to people, be a more loving person. And he gives you a definition of love here. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, you've all heard that definition before. I'll let you meditate on that in your free time. That's the part that says it's a wonderful thing said, and we're just going to go, let's not talk about that. I want to get down to this next section. Now, many people think this is next section because they're more interested in all of Corinthians talking about gifts of the Spirit, you know, the flash gifts. We call them the, you know, the healing, talking in languages, uh, prophecy. Um, what else you got? Flash gifts. Word of knowledge. Stuff that you don't have a right to know because you didn't study it. And somehow you're speaking German. Somehow, because there's a German guy at your dinner table, God just gave you the gift to speak German to him, and he's going, where did you learn German? I said, I didn't learn German. God just gave me the knowledge of German tonight so I could talk to you about the Lord Jesus Christ. People fall on their knees and repent when that happens. We know what the flash gifts are. We know that we usually are going to desire the higher gifts, but we usually get handed the gift of service or administration. I have the gift of music, the clarinet, or whatever it is. We know that people in the church, you may have been in this discussion, it's between cessationism and non-cessationism. The word cessation means ending. There's an awful lot of the evangelical church that believes the gifts, the flash gifts, have ended. And they go to this passage, verse 8, Love never ends, as for prophecies they will pass away. As for tongues they will cease. As for knowledge it will pass away. And they immediately say, See, 
These things will pass away. In the history of the church, it was needed in the first century to establish the church, but it's no longer needed since we have the perfect, the word of God. That's this. Once the Bible was completed, once people could sit down and have Bible studies, look things up, have an index in the back. You didn't need a prophet in the church. You didn't need someone speaking in tongues in the church. I don't know what your view is. This church doesn't have a view. I'm not a cessationist. I think there's just way too much in the scriptures telling you how to do this and how to do that to say that it's not the case. I don't think that church history is the expression of this love entering and not going away and the other things passing away. Because he says, for our knowledge, verse 9, is imperfect and our prophecy is imperfect. But when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. He's telling you the whole passage is about love being the missing or the possibly missing element. The perfect must come, and it's not waiting a couple hundred years for it to come in the church. You, you mean to say that the first few hundred years, even when an apostle was your pastor, you had no hope of having the kind of church that wasn't a hell? Is Paul recommending that the perfect, or suggesting prophetically, that the perfect will come someday, by and by? Or is he saying, this perfect must arrive so that your church life won't be a hell? Because of the imperfect prophecy, the imperfect knowledge, the imperfect tongues, whatever the, the thing is, these things are not adequate to the task. For a little verse here from John, 1 John 2, 5 on the side about how truly love for God is perfected. That's a different writer, different part of the Bible. But the idea of being perfected in love is an apostolic notion. When the perfect comes, and for people to insert the Bible in there on that red section, when the perfect comes, that is somehow the Council of Carthage decided on the canon of Scripture, what a self-absorbed... This is part of the problem of the church. The church has got into its notion how important it is. It has become that, that its institutional power, not its love, is the perfect. It didn't even tell you in a passage about love and how much love is needed and how much love fixes what's missing in wonderful gifts. They say, no, no, no. Pay no attention to the man behind the mirror. It's us and our decision about the Bible. The perfect comes in you. And when the perfect comes in you, just like you move from a machine mentality about, just, about this, this institution to a body metaphor where you're members of one another and you feel the things together, you know that the advancement of it has everything in its ordinate place, but then it is nothing without love. And Paul's not writing the Corinthians so that they will hope that someday maybe their great-grandchildren would be able to be in a church where it was loving. It's now. 
You've got to bring it in. You're individually members of it, and individuals love or don't love. Institutions can't be loving. You can't design an institution. You know, it can have some soft colors in the waiting room, but that's about it. It can have a policy of always, um, I want to express this, I think I may have pointed it out before, Every waiter or waitress in the world today seems to suggest that whatever I said was perfect. No matter what, I could change my mind. It would still be perfect. It's perfect. Order this, perfect. Now that, they must love me. When people are that kind, we can design businesses that pretend kindness. Ever be in McDonald's? When somebody tells somebody in the back that they need X, Y, Z, and they yell, thank you, because they're told to yell, thank you. And when at Panda Express, when you leave, do they yell at you? See ya, bye. Well, I know this is a problem. I don't know. I don't think they just hire like uh, Dutch Brothers does. People weirded out by goodness. But Panda Express does little polls you can take online. Did they greet you when you came in? Did they say goodbye to you when you left? They ask you that because they tell them to do that. This is not, we can, we can have the kind of church that has, it will never happen here before my death, where you stand up and you greet the person behind you. Peace be upon you and peace to you as well. You can organize fake love. You can make you guys pretend to like each other. But we have a task that is upon us. We're not going to fake it until someday the church becomes loving. We're going to say everything that God has given us. As far as I know, none of you are prophets. I don't know if any of you speak in tongues. Some of you might. I don't know if I believe it's tongue. It may be. I might be wrong. I'm a, I'm a teacher. Some of you guys can administrate. We might have a limited bunch of gifts, but whatever gifts we have, whatever we desire to have, whatever the body is capable of being in a small town in North Idaho, we want it to be at its best because we each have found out that love needs to be perfected in us so the church can be perfected for us. When I was a child, verse 11... I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. There are three illustrations for you to think about in terms of what the relationship is here. All the gifts to the church without love are the distinction made here. I was talking to, who was it? L loosely said, talking. I was talking, actually I made sense, to um, little um, Luther Rozier. At, he was over for dinner. He's how old? Two. Two. He is incoherent. He doesn't think he is. He's got all sorts of things to say. And an attitude to back it up. Because he can't understand while I'm looking at him blankly and yelling at him, speak English, boy. Because when you speak like a child, and you think like a child, and you reason like a child, that's your basic thing. You are uninformed. You, you are incoherent. You're putting things together that make perfect good sense in your world. But it's a limited world. And it's talking about the perfect coming, the love coming into your life, as that 
the distinction between you being an idiot of a child, and children are idiots, and growing up. You know the difference when you finally realize, oh, so that's what income tax is. You figure things out. You figure out how to make change, how to change a tire, whatever it is you grew up in. But speaking, thinking, and reasoning like a child is having a church be in the disarray of, you know, the, what are the, what's that, Graham Greene, was it Graham Greene wrote uh, Lord of the Flies? Children running the show. Children running life. So there's an element of incoherence that has to stop. And there's the element that's like verse 12, and now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Incoherent on one hand, because you don't have the processing ability. And inaccurate and out of focus. Have you ever, I, not that you women wear makeup or anything, but you've probably heard of people that do. And uh, perhaps you can imagine trying to put on makeup in a fogged mirror. I wouldn't even want to shave in a fogged mirror. And I don't shave, you notice I have a beard? I don't shave much. I just shave parts of my neck. But I don't want to walk up to that with a sharp object and start running it over my face like there were no consequences. Didn't really matter. Things are going to turn out okay. I'm going to be bleeding to death. I want, I don't want out of focus. There are friends of yours who take pictures with their cameras and they don't realize there's something you wait for called focus. It's our friend. Do not post it if it's not in focus. I don't want to see you looking like a smudge of beige. Focus is important. Being able to see. Face to face is such an exciting thing. You ever wish mirrors didn't reverse you? Just actually showed you actually what somebody else is seeing? When it talks about back in the Old Testament when Miriam and Aaron were giving God grief about God's preference for Moses basically God's basically saying I deal with Moses face to face as one talks with a friend face to face you you might have visions I deal with him face to face the kind of Christianity we're looking for that's going to take the most ideal set of gifts from prophecy on down and make it actually not be a floating hell is something that is to be viewed this way that it's a matter of maturity you're not incoherent it's a matter of focus and accuracy it is not you seeing a reflection of life that doesn't represent enough and then it says I shall know in part or now I know in part then I shall understand fully the distinction between a church without love and a church with love is coherence, accuracy, focus, and completeness.
You ever left anything out of a recipe? Maybe. We got somebody filling it in. Bad things happen when you leave things out of a recipe. Um, have you ever left something out of a recipe and denied that it was in the recipe? Until someone holds your hand and lets you, points it right at, this is where the baking soda is mentioned, and how much of it. Oh, so I got hockey pucks instead of cookies. You can't leave things out of the recipe. There's a way of knowing that isn't knowing. There's a, ba a, ba a parcel of Christian information that you read countless books on theology. You picked up all the Bible memory stuff you could pick up. You, you learned what some complicated thought was, and it wasn't fully knowing. It was in part. I was looking at this as if these almost represent the three things he was talking about, his tongues, prophecies, and knowledge. I wouldn't want to push that too far. That tongues are like speaking like a child. That prophecy is, needs to see face to face, and your knowledge must be full. That may be. You can give some meditation to that. But what I want to <coughs> point out is that everything can look like it's present. You could be trying to function like a body, but because of the absence of love, things get misplaced. Inordinate attention is given to something. This is what love fail, it, it provides to you. Love provides something that, that doesn't have the incoherence. That doesn't automatically think that the the pastors or the prophets in the church are the people that should always be represented as the front of the ministry. We need to be full in our knowledge. Now, this is right at the end of the passage. I have this passage out of 1 John, a little later in 1 John, where he comes back to the perfected love issue. And I want to read it to you because I, I want you to not get away from the Corinthians passage realizing that God wants this made in you primarily. That if you don't, not everyone will speak in tongues and not all will prophesy and not all will do the X, Y, or Z. But you're all required to love. And all of us, for all of us, our participation in this body and the broader body in this town is only going to be, for all of the misalignments of institutional arrangement, love is the thing that's going to make it not be a hell. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and he who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the expiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No man has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. 
the perfect cause. His love being perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his own spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we know and believe the love God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. In this is love perfected with us that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and he who fears is not perfected in love. Now, another passage is loaded that we're going to ignore most of it. We want you to be thinking, how in my participation in the body Whatever I am giving to the body in my gifts, whatever I'm laboring to do, whether it's just praying and support for things and taking care of something that needs to be taken care of, whatever it is, we don't want to create a church that isn't rooted in love regarding that. And that that definition for love is not something for weddings and not something for you uh, thinking generically. I want you to think specifically about your function together the patience and kindness that people who have to work together in a situation might have. The jealousy and boastfulness, the arrogance and the rudeness happen all the time in church, insisting on its own way, irritable, resentful. It's amazing how many churches working out God's gospel to the world and trying to be a place that grows with a lot more people is just filled with impatient and unkind people. We want to be perfected in this love. We know that whoever keeps the word of God, in him the love for God is perfected. We know that we're mimicking God or God is made in us. We are godly or godlike when we love. We look at Jesus Christ. That's the action. We want to be made like him, sacrificing ourselves for others. And it's not that you're being given more, deeper, wilder prophecies, more, deeper, wilder knowledge, more, deeper, wilder tongues. You're being given love to keep you clean regarding each other. Whatever tongues you have are imperfect. Whatever prophecy you have is imperfect. And because it's not the perfect knowledge that comes, it's love that comes that perfects it. It's amazing what love will do to someone who knows perfectly well that you are not ever going to be perfect in knowledge, but you're perfected by the addition of love to your imperfect knowledge. Because love does not insist on... I, I like knowing stuff. I like being in arguments. I like winning arguments, especially. There's all sorts of temptations attached to that. You want to insist on your own way. You want to, and all of us feel that when we disagree with somebody about what, when something happened. We want to be right. Love realizes it's not that important. My father always said, you can be very wrong being right. And this is why, because I do not ins look to the, my, I not all, what's the phrase at Philippians? Not look to my own interests, but also the interests of others. 
when I insist on the other person's participation in my body, when I think of their interest in my body, before I start to align how the gears and the cogs work. So faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So, let's pray. Dear Lord, we're very grateful. You've been kind to us and loving towards us. We'd ask that we would learn to look to you and your son to see how it's done, to see how someone who knew it all had all power and faith that could move mountains, who could raise the dead, loved, and looked at people who had disobeyed and didn't care, turned away, and still loved, and still died. Lord, help us understand that perfection in the church is not um, in the measurables, but in, in the immeasurable of how we care. In your Son's name, amen.